Imagine That Studios presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 5 The official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Eliza, would you mind if I asked you a personal question? Of course, darling. You know you can talk to me about anything in the whole wide... What is it with you and Bruce? Anything but that. Oh, now go on. Wellington, really? This is not a subject I am comfortable talking about. Is it a New Zealand, Australia, big brother, little brother sort of relationship? Is it an adversarial relationship bordering on codependence? Or is it that the two of you just rub another the wrong way? Yes. Oh, now you're just having a go with me, aren't you? Welly, that mission was a long time ago. I was a newly minted agent. I didn't know Bruce all that well. It's just an awkward time for me. Consider your story an early Christmas gift for me. Funny you should mention the holidays. A Very Southern Christmas by Pip Valentine Eliza D. Braun stepped down off the airship gangplank and looked around. She'd got a good view of Cooktown coming in from under the clouds and the greenness had surprised her. In her imaginings, Australia was always burnt orange and dusty. This was as green as home, though the ferns of New Zealand were replaced with the lush foliage of the tropics. The north of Queensland was quite the eye-opener. The moist heat wrapped around her as soon as her foot touched the ground, and she was glad to have dressed in khaki for the occasion. It wasn't really Christmassy, but those that worked for the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences didn't get to choose the timing of their assignments. When the strange called, it couldn't simply be put off. Though she would miss her mother's Christmas pudding, that was the sacrifice she had signed up to make. Still, she would have quite liked to look around if possible, but she was here to help, not act the tourist. And she was reminded of that fact when a voice called out her name. Miss Braun! She whirled around and peered through the crowd of disembarking passengers to see who it was. She knew a few people from the Australian office of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, since they often worked in tandem with them. But the tall man striding in her direction was a stranger. He parted the crowd like a ship under full steam and towered over most of them while he did so. Dressed as if ready to depart on safari immediately, in dark brown breeches, beige shirt open at the neck, and a wide hat that kept the sun off his face. His face was certainly worth seeing, and Eliza's skin grew a little hotter than was warranted, even in Australia. As a junior agent, she hadn't quite got past the most awful blushes. She shifted her valise to the other hand so she could hold out one to the man. Eliza D. Braun from the New Zealand office. He glanced at her hand for a moment, sighed, and then shook it. You're all they could send? A little taken aback, Eliza tried to imagine the poor man was just overly tired and hot. Regional Director Murphy said I needed experience in the Australian office, so when your request came in... All right, then. 
he said, snatching her valise out of her hand. Follow me. It was a good thing she had decided on trousers this morning because Agent Campbell didn't slow down one jot. She concentrated on the large sweat stain on his shirt as she hurried to keep up. Outside the airport, he strode towards a large white horse tied up at one of the station's hitches. It was a mode of transport that made Eliza's eyebrows shoot up. She would never have imagined that an agent of the ministry would have such an antiquated way of getting around. Usually, her colleagues embraced the newest technology, or even tinkered about with their own. Campbell got up onto the tall stallion without any effort, hung her valise on one side of his saddle, and then held out his hand. Her staring up at him for a moment must have irritated him somehow, because he shook his finger near to her face. Come on, don't tell me you can't ride. Normally, getting up behind a handsome devil like Agent Campbell would have been an attractive proposition, but the humidity of Cooktown would mean they'd be stuck together by the time they arrived. She wanted to make a good impression in the Australian office, and arriving covered in sweat and horseflies wasn't her idea of that. I do, she admitted, but surely the office can't be far away. I could just walk. Campbell tilted his hat and glanced down the road. Oh, if you want to stretch your legs, then sure. The office is above the general store on Charlotte Street. Then he clicked his tongue and the horse sprang away, with her valise bobbing against its side. Charlotte Street, she said to herself, trying not to be upset being abandoned on the side of the road. After all, she had mentioned it. It turned out that Cooktown was a small enough town that it was but three miles walk. The airport was close to the ocean and the town was on the river. It would have been a pleasant stroll if not for the heat, but she arrived at the store and was relieved to see Campbell's horse tied up outside, her valise still intact on his saddle. Maybe Cooktown was a fine place, but she didn't want all of her things stolen. She unhooked her luggage and went inside. The balding shopkeeper directed her upstairs and there she found Campbell. He'd seated himself by the window so a cool breeze could waft through his fine, dark hair. A table in front of him was covered in maps, drawings and a couple of newspapers as well. It didn't look much of an office, though. He gestured before him as if they were nothing but gold. Here you go, Lizzie. All the particulars you need to absorb before we get going. Dropping her valise and ignoring what surely had to be some kind of Australian informality, Eliza bent to examine the particulars of the case. Two children gone missing, she asked, glancing up. Since last week, he replied, smoothing his moustache and staring for a moment out the window. This town survives on the tin industry. Hard-working folk. And these were children that didn't just run off, or in locked houses and upstairs rooms, and no sign of a break-in. The sketches of the scene of the crime were precise, and she saw that Agent Campbell was right. All the children had been taken from secure locations. And trackers? Bruce's eyes narrowed. A couple of Garandi lads came in to assist the local constabulary, and they did find signs of something passing. Couldn't identify them, but definitely not human, they said. With one finger, he moved another sketch over. There was a strange, long footprint, the like of which she had never seen before. Some sort of wild animal? Oh, well, no, actually, because there was no blood. 
It wasn't a dingo or any other wild animal that took them. He punched the image with the side of his fist. This is a bloody automaton. Eliza frowned. While there were many fantastic devices being built all over the world, an automaton didn't seem the most likely. The cooktown was small, concentrated on mining which used large drilling machines, not human-like automatons. So you think this is for the purposes of kidnapping? She asked, pushing her hair off her face as she looked up. Bruce leaned forward. Does that make sense? I said there were hard-working folk in this town, but I sure as shit didn't say they were rich. Immediately she recognised what he was doing, throwing down some earthy language to assert his dominance. That just showed he had not read her personnel file. She had been pulling pints and scrubbing floors in her father's pub for most of her life. They didn't get much earthier than that. It wasn't like this was the first man to try and put her in her place, and she didn't judge him for it. Not yet, at least. So if not for ransom, then why? As soon as the words left her mouth, she knew. Children were a target the world over for nefarious purposes. Sexual, for work, or as small test subjects for experiments. They're calling him Father Christmas around here. That's awful, Bruce nodded. Yeah, it is. But the word is that he taught one naughty boy and one sweet little girl. I'm sure that is coincidence. Picking up the image of the tracks, she added, Where exactly did these lead? Ah, that's where you come in, Bruce said, standing up and stretching. The Gungadi trackers gave up once they started to head to the Black Mountain. Now it was time for her ignorance to show. And what is that? Putting his hands on the table, he leaned closer with a grin. It's what everyone steers clear of around here. Is that why you call me in? She asked in an even tone. Bruce crossed his arms. A copper went missing back in 84 when he was hunting some bush rangers. Now I can't even get the bloody constabulary to follow me out there. His eyes swept her up and down. I was hoping they'd send a big strapping bloke. Eliza looked into his clear blue eyes and began to see past his handsome exterior. I assure you, Agent Campbell, while I am not strapping, I have completed all the physical tests the Ministry requires. I'm also a fine shot, if it should get to that. He let out a snort. <laughs> well, as long as you can ride and aren't afraid of tight spaces, you'll do. On the map, he pointed to a strange dark elevation among the green, indicating jungle. This here is the Black Mountain, also called Kalkajaka by the local Aborigines. They refuse to go near the place and say it's full of evil spirits or some such. His voice dripped with dismissal and Eliza was surprised. Even in her short time at working for the ministry, she'd seen more unbelievable things than she could have reckoned. A Maori chief come back to life, a cursed music box and the ghost of one of New Zealand's most famous politicians. It was strange that Agent Campbell, who had worked in the same business for so much longer, would dismiss the possibility that the native people were right. Still, she wasn't comfortable enough to ask why this was. Instead, she nodded in what she hoped was a sage manner and stared at the ominous dark stain on the map. When do we head in? He scratched his impressive chin. A day there and back. It'd be good to get the children back to their families on Christmas Eve. It would make the holidays bright, she replied. So we set off in the morning? Now he laughed. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha, if you ain't noticed, this place is full of sun and sweat during the day. 
Evening and early morning is the best time to travel. I'll go get you a horse and we'll set out towards sundown. And you best pack that valise down into something smaller. Striding over to the far side of the room, he lifted a hidden latch and swung a portion of the wall back. Behind it was a small arsenal. Is all this yours? She asked, finding herself drawn over to it. She had never seen such a fine display of weaponry in all her life. Even the Ministry Armoury in New Zealand didn't have such a gathering of unusual-looking rifles and pistols. Sure is, he said proudly, running his hand over the nearest gun stock. I got back from London last month and brought as many of their R&D lads' experimentals as they'd let me get away with. Eliza couldn't help but picking up a fine and gleaming pistol with a clear tube on the top. It sparked green, as if a bit of lightning had been trapped there. Bruce leapt forward and carefully guided it out of her hands. <laughs> Careful now there, Lizzie. Not sure what some of these even do. I was told about the side effects, though. Still, we should go in as best armed as we can. If we don't have the manpower, we can at least have firepower. Bruce tilted his head, and when his smile came, it was blinding. You know, I like the direction you're thinking. Eliza straightened up and grinned back. Even if he was calling her Lizzie, like her annoying younger brother Gerald was wont to do, he was still a good man. New Zealand and Australia were like brothers, her father had told her, always squabbling, but built on the same ideals. She never pointed out the convict part of Australian history, and she decided to avoid doing it now to Bruce. Especially when he allowed her to pick two rifles and three pistols to take with her. Warned off the one with the green vial, she chose two conventional Lee Metford rifles, as well as a nameless experimental and three regular pistols. She put one in her holster under her jacket and another in the small of her back. The rest of their armaments went into a rifle bag. Bruce then left her to pack essentials only into a small saddlebag. By the time she was done, the relentless sun was creeping towards the horizon. Shortly after, rain started to fall. Bruce appeared with a small brown mare and stared down for a moment, possibly hoping she might have turned into that big strapping bloke while he was away. Best get on with it then, he said, dropping the reins in her general direction. Eliza wasn't much for keeping a stiff upper lip, but she was one for showing her mettle to change people's minds. This wasn't the first person who had doubted her abilities in the ministry. It was just that back in New Zealand, she had Director Araha Murphy's support. Well, she thought, time I learned how to do without that. She mounted up and followed after Agent Campbell. He didn't look back, but she didn't worry about that. She was sure by the time they'd found this nefarious kidnapper, he'd have a better opinion of her. He rode very well, she noted, and cut a fine figure in his saddle. The sun gave way to the moon, which hung huge and looming, but provided enough light to see by. Eliza had heard tell of moonlight goggles being developed at the legendary Ministry R&D department in London, which would have made things much easier. But it would be a while until such wonders filtered south of the equator. They followed a road west out of town, Eliza trailing behind Campbell and choosing to remain silent. Instead, she watched the jungle around them, hearing the whir of unknown insects and the rustle of leaves. Australia, unlike New Zealand, had native creatures aside from birds. Kangaroos, dingoes and wombats seemed tolerable, 
but Eliza harboured a little worry about snakes. Her homeland had none of those, and she couldn't help but peering into the undergrowth. As if reading her thoughts, Bruce called out over his shoulder. Keep to the track, Braun. Plenty of taipans in this sort of bush country. Swallowing hard, she rode her mare a little closer. <laughs> of course, Black Mountain is supposed to have giant pythons living all over it. So maybe a taipan wouldn't be so bad. Eliza swallowed hard and decided not to comment on that, lest her voice break into a squeak. Her hand went reflexively to her pistol and her horse let out a snort. They travelled most of the night on the road, and when Campbell called for them to make a camp, it must have been on the other side of midnight. It had been a while since Eliza had spent so long in the saddle, but after all the talk of snakes, she was quite content to stay there. Campbell didn't take any notice, tying up his stallion and taking down his bedroll and setting about making a fire. Come on, Braun, he finally called. You get the billy on and you'll feel much better. He handed her the little battered tin pot and watched as she set about making tea. She hoped he had brought her along for more than this. Still, a cuppa did steady her nerves. They sat silent around the fire and she sipped her drink from a mug that looked like it had seen plenty of its own adventures. First time in Queensland? Bruce asked, his smile quite disarming. She nodded. Yes, but I have been to Australia before. Sydney. When she nodded, he gave a little snort. <laughs> Sydney's not really Australia. Just another little big city trying to be London. He gestured around them. This is the real Australia. The place of bunyips, wild crocs and bushrangers like Ned Kelly. Were you involved in that? Eliza couldn't help but lean forward. Bruce shrugged. He was a damn fine clankerton, but unfortunately, a bit before my time. Oh, she stared into her tea. He threw the last bit of his tea off into the undergrowth. Anyway, try and get some sleep. We'll be up early. We'll ride for a good few miles, but the Black Mountain isn't a place to take a horse. He didn't explain any further, and so she wrapped herself in her blanket, tried not to think about taipans crawling in with her, and went to sleep. They were up again after what felt like only an hour or so. The jungle turned more to bush with light undergrowth and just for a while Eliza was happy about that. It was only when they reached the base of the mountain her mood changed back. As they pulled their horses up just beyond the reach of the trees, Eliza started to understand why the local tribe avoided this place. Black Mountain did not present a friendly face to visitors. From the green of the bush it was startlingly barren and pitch black. The red earth gave way to uncountable thousands upon thousands of black boulders piled upon each other. They formed a looming presence high above the top of the trees, with few plants daring to make home on its slope. As the wind blew over the rock, a low, ominous whistle filled the air, making their horses twist their ears this way and that. Eliza's mare pranced sideways, eyes rolling. She didn't blame her one bit. Looking up at the mountain, she had to fight back the urge to turn around and head away from it. Her throat grew dry. Was the mountain staring back at her? Bruce tilted his hat. Yeah, she makes an impression, doesn't she? Why he would give anything like this edifice a female moniker, she didn't know. Not a good one. 
No, the native people hold this as sacred ground, but they won't go near it. Bruce dismounted and tied up his stallion. Once she was down, he pulled a wrapped bundle from his saddlebag. It was a brass contraption with gears and levers that Eliza was dying to examine more closely. He fitted it around his arm and fiddled with the controls. That looks interesting, she dared. Looks like it uses ether to... Well, actually, it maps underground spaces. He made a face and tapped it. The Clankertons in Brisbane knocked it up for me. I'm going to head in and try and map the underground caves. Place is riddled with them. Eliza pressed her lips together, wondering if he would ever let her show him she did have some idea what she was talking about. Instead, she just said, I'll watch your back. He patted her on the shoulder. Nah, you won't. I have to concentrate on this and I can't nursemaid you. Nursemaid? Eliza stared at him for a moment, hardly believing what he was saying, before blurting out, Then why did you bring me with you? Well, a strapping bloke would have been helpful, but honestly, since all I have is you, the best thing is for you to wait here, and if I don't return by nightfall, head back to Cooktown for help. She stared at him, barely believing what he was saying. A well-trained dog could have done the same thing. Crossing her arms in front of her, she tried to make this handsome man see she was more than just a failsafe. Agent Campbell, I am fully trained, and I assure you... He patted her again, this time on the head. I don't mean to make it sound like this was optional, Lizzie. I mean, this is an order. She screwed her mouth tight so hard she wondered her jaw didn't pop off. No one called her Lizzie and got away with it, not even Gerald. Still, this was an order, and she wanted to make the right impression. Right-o, then. Agent Bruce Campbell walked away from her and towards the mountain without looking back. She watched him scramble up through the field of black boulders, picking his way higher and higher, stopping now and then to fiddle with his underground map maker. He hadn't even given it a decent name. All the while, she got hotter and hotter, and once again it had nothing to do with the Australian climate. Eliza did as ordered, though. She waited, passing the time by watching wildlife, cleaning her weaponry and kicking rocks at the base of the mountain. The weird moans and groans the wind playing with the boulders made didn't make the time pass any quicker. She thought of the million other things she could be doing rather than being stuck here. Even though she loved the ministry, spending Christmas with her family was special. Mum would be heating up the Christmas pudding while Dad saw to the goose and her siblings bickered in the parlour. She almost drifted off under a tree thinking about what she was missing. Only Araha Murphy's reminder kept her alert. Constant vigilance is required of an agent. So leaning on her elbow, she sat up and scanned the mountain. Bruce had long gone and nothing moved on the expanse of boulders. It was almost as if he had been swallowed by them. She ate a little bread from her saddlebag at about noon and paced back and forth near the base of the pile of boulders. By the time the sun began its crawl behind the mountain, she had already had enough. Agent Campbell might have given her a direct order, but she did not want to be stumbling around on that treacherous ground in the dark. If she was going to go after him, then it would be now. Yes, she was going against a direct order, but sometimes an agent had to think for themselves, and she thought... Campbell had to be in trouble. Leaving the horses tied up, she set her foot on the first boulder and shivered. 
It wasn't just the eerie sound of the wind. There was something else, something primal, telling her to go in the other direction. Hoisting her rifle over her shoulder, she pushed on. It wasn't a huge mountain in the scheme of things. Eliza had climbed Mount Cook back home after all, but there was something exhausting about this place. The boulders meant you had to climb around them to move forward, and there was no simple place to put her foot. Each step was risking a broken ankle. Following the direction that Campbell had gone, she scanned about for signs. It wasn't going to be like there would be footprints. A couple of times her leg nearly disappeared as small boulders rolled out of her way. His warning about giant pythons whispered in her ear. She climbed on, sweating and nervous. The wind was the only sound up here, and she had to fight herself not to turn around. The sun was going to leave her soon, and then she would have to rely on her lantern. Alone on this strange mountain, and with limited visibility. She was about to resign herself to endless boulders and silence, when she nearly plunged into a ravine. Stones skittered under her feet as she caught herself with the palm of her hands, but she caught a glimpse of a tuft of cotton on one of the rocks. She couldn't say if it was from Campbell, but it was the only sign of humanity she'd found so far. Carefully, she half climbed, half slid down into the break in the mountain. Now, regardless of the sun, she would have to rely on her lantern. Lighting it, she held it up before her and ventured in. Several of the boulders here were different to those on the surface. They were crushed, as if smashed by a large hammer. They rattled together and she stepped through them and just off to one side, she found Campbell's cowboy hat. Bending carefully, she picked it up and put it on. Then she shuttered her lamp to its smallest aperture and took hold of her pistol. Her heart was thundering so hard she wouldn't have been surprised if it didn't echo through the boulder ravine. The black stone absorbed most of her light as she crept forward, placing each foot as carefully as she could. The sweat of her palm on the grip of her weapon made her worry she would drop it. After about ten minutes of creeping, she saw that her light was no longer the only one in this ravine. Up ahead, something was shining. That didn't comfort her, but at least told her she was going in the right direction. As she got even closer, she could make out the sound of gears whirring and the occasional puff of steam. Something mechanical was ahead, and after a moment she realised it was actually singing a tune. We wish you a Merry Christmas, but tooted out with clanks and jets of steam. It was the kind of thing she had heard from an organ grinder on the waterfront in Auckland, but on a much grander scale. Eliza was careful not to fall into making assumptions about the kindness of the creation making the music, but she couldn't help smiling a little. When she peeked over the large boulder in a bend in the ravine, it was to quite a sight. An automaton that stood at least ten feet tall was bent over a large workbench, its back to her. A boy of about eleven and a red-headed girl of about eight were off to the right of the mechanical man, playing with what could only be toys. The gangly boy played with a pile of brass cubes, poking them around with a stick and occasionally glancing up at the automaton. It was easy to see the concern on his young face. The girl crouched under the table, her arms full of tiny brass dolls. She looked like she was about to cry, but was only just holding it back. Then, to top it all off, 
There was Agent Campbell's crumpled form off to the right of the bench. His satchel and crushed lantern lay a few feet further on. It was hard to figure if he was dead or alive until he let out a little groan. Quick as thought, the automaton spun around and slammed its large metallic foot down on Bruce's chest. The agent let out a grunt, so Eliza knew he was alive, but offered no resistance as the machine wrapped him up tight in what looked like coloured string. Bad man, it grumbled, and its voice was far more high-pitched than the size would have suggested. You shall get coal this year. The automaton removed a bag under the table and tucked a piece of charcoal under Bruce's chin. It also opened its own chest and threw a piece or two in for good measure. Eliza got an excellent view of the interior workings, jerking pistons and a red-hot boiler. It was exquisite workmanship. The little red-haired girl dared to peek out from under the table. Can we go home soon, Santa? Never, no, never, the automaton replied in a cheery tone. You are my good Christmas helpers and I shall keep you safe in my workshop. Seeing Campbell get stomped must have taken out the natural prickliness of the redhead because she retreated under the bench, her eyes filling with tears. Living in a granite ravine in a desolate mountain probably wouldn't be good for the long-term health of the children. Eliza had never seen an automaton acting like this, nor even heard of one. They were usually simple creations who did laundry and carried heavy objects. This one was interacting with human children and maintaining it was Santa Claus all at the same time. I failed to keep a little boy safe once, the automaton said, turning its cylindrical head to stare at the comatose Campbell. I won't make that mistake again. The voice coming from the automaton quavered slightly. There is always a story you don't know about, Aroha had told her. Campbell had blown into the ravine, not knowing the story, and the automaton had overpowered him. Brute force was not going to be the answer here, as much as she liked that. Eliza was going to have to be smarter, since she had no chance of being stronger than this behemoth. Tucking away her pistol under her shirt, she instead unsheathed a knife and hid it in her sleeve. When she stepped out from behind the safety of the boulder, sweat was running down her neck and her breathing caught in her throat. Nevertheless, she managed to squeak out, There you are, Santa! The automaton was on her in a few large strides. When he snatched her up, she felt sure he would crush her. As she was raised up to its gleaming eyes, she noted, as impressive as the brass machine was, there was a touch of the unfinished about it. The face was only an impression of a human, and its arms were two different lengths. It tilted its head from side to side as she smiled. It's me, your elf Eliza, she said, trying to hang as limp as possible. I have finally found you. It examined her like she was a bug, swinging her around. If it decided to close its fist tight, then it would be a short day for her. Elf, it said uncertainly. Yes, uh, Eliza, I'm here to help you, silly. Thin streams of steam oozed from behind its chest plate as it considered her fate. After a panic-inducing moment, it set her down on the table. The children stared at her, their faces frozen in uncertain expressions. I'm having trouble with these bows, the automaton said after a long pause made of click-clacks and puffs of steam. David said bows need to be on everything. He pointed over to the far end of the cabin. Turning to follow his gaze, 
Eliza spotted two sets of bones, most definitely human, laid out neatly. One was large, and one was heartbreakingly small. She swallowed hard. As she set about tying a large bow around the box the Santa automaton indicated, she cleared her throat. <clears throat> and, uh, what happened to David? The large cylindrical head swiveled in her direction. His father brought him here to keep him safe, but they both got sick and died. Leaning over, it patted the little girl on the head. I won't let that happen to any more boys and girls. They'll stay safe in Santa's workshop. More curls of steam broke free of its chest cavity. The story was terrible, but she began to understand. A scientist had come to this hidden spot to try and save his child, but along the way he had somehow created an automaton with more than a few cogs misaligned. With their death, the Santa automaton had looked for other children to care for. It was so big it could easily have snatched them out of windows. If it wasn't so terrifying, it might have been quite sweet. Oh yes, and it had stomped on Campbell. I can see you're doing a great job, she said, wriggling around to fiddle with the bows. When the automaton turned to pick up a spanner, she dropped the knife onto the ground right next to Bruce. She did not dare to look down to see if he got the hint. Instead, she tilted her head closer to the Santa automaton's chest. There was a strange noise that accompanied the steam. Out in this wilderness by himself, not quite fully finished, the machine seemed to be running off kilter. Keep them talking. Arrowhaz lessons had shown her worth of that. Suspects often hung themselves with their own words, and maybe that applied to automatons too? So why these children? she asked sliding closer to the machine. Only a few more inches and she'd be able to get her hand inside. It wouldn't take much to yank one of those pistons loose. The Santa automaton turned its brass head. And that was when the wave of blue light hit him from behind. The machine cried out. The two children darted for cover under the bench, even as Eliza held out her hand. No! she screamed, but it was too late. The energy from Campbell's rifle blew every screw from the automaton's chest and sent cogs and pistons flying from inside. David! The whale was cut off before the tumble of metal and gears crashed to the ground. Agent Bruce Campbell, a wash of blood obscuring the right side of his face, took the rifle down from his shoulder with a grim smile. Eliza looked at him, her face contorted with horror. He hadn't done any harm. Bruce tilted his head, the corner of his mouth twitching. <laughs> Now he did, Lizzie. He was a kidnapper of children, a bloody insane machine. The Asander automaton was a crazed wreck. Pieces melted together and everything blown apart. She was sure no one would be able to make head nor tails of these remains. But she did know Campbell had wrecked a unique creation. She stared back at him, seeing his black and white world reflected in his eyes. Just because he got one up on you doesn't mean you had to destroy him just like that. I was very close to simply shutting him down. Imagine what we could have learned. He shook his head. You gotta harden up, Lizzie girl. You're gonna have to make decisions in a snap, just like I did. Climbing down from the bench, she glared at him. Not exactly the spirit of the season, Bruce. And not even a thank you for saving your bacon when I should have hightailed it back to town. His dark brows furrowed at the impertinent use of his first name. Well, actually... You know, you could have saved me a stomping or two. 
Eliza's blood was now getting up to boiling point. She'd had enough of his snide comments. You know where a jackass goes to get a nice cool drink, Bruce? He frowned at her. From, from a stream? Her hands clenched into fists. No, from a, well, actually. He didn't understand and he never would. The two children glanced between them. Are you two married? The little girl asked, crossing her arms in front of her. Eliza snorted and picked her up. <clears throat> we are most certainly not, but guess what? We can get you back to your parents. When the girl pointed, the boy handed her one of the exquisitely jointed brass dolls she'd been playing with. He did make good toys, the boy said, shoving his hands into his pockets. Yes, yes he did, she ruffled his hair. Just as long as you understand that wasn't the real Santa Claus. Bruce here didn't destroy the real Santa. Oh, I know that, the little girl replied. No jackass could ever kill Santa. And so with Bruce fuming in their wake, the three of them headed back towards town and a proper Christmas. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, visit ministryofpeculiaroccurrences.com to order Operation Endgame and the Curse of the Silver Pharaoh. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And Imagine That Studios production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.